our text this week is Luke 23. You know, everything, or Luke 23, starting in verse 32, if you have a Bible and want to turn to it, it'll be up on the screen as well. Everything in Luke has led up to this. It's been, we've been working our way towards this moment. And in many ways, everything in Scripture has led to this as well. And everything after that, from this point on, everything's going to look back at this moment and talk about what this means, what it meant, what it still means now to this day. And we've, we've got to get this. We've got to wrestle with the cross. And we've got to learn to see Scripture, but our lives, our world, through cross-shaped lenses the cross changes everything. The cross divides everything. And so I hope today, that as we look at this, that you will consider the true meaning of the cross, no matter how familiar with it you are, that you will really consider just boiled down to its grittiest, realest thing, what it really is and means. So let's read our text together, starting in verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, they, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. So notice there the word crucified. It doesn't mean killed. Crucified is the word that means to be, to be um, nailed or, or hung up on the cross, to be put on the cross. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There's also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And indeed, we justly, for we're receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man's done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So this, was, this would have been midday, from about noon to midday, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw 
what had taken place. He praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, and they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid, and they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. So if you notice right there, it's something I had not noticed or maybe paid attention to before. They go to see where he's laid, then they go home to prepare the spices um, and everything to anoint his body. But it's the Sabbath, so the Sabbath begins Friday evening. So it's the day of preparation. The Sabbath begins, and then it goes until Saturday evening. They were planning to return Sunday morning to um, to anoint him with the spices, to anoint his body and, and prepare it fully. And so it kind of leaves us with this cliffhanger. It's not prepared yet fully. They're going to go back, and we'll get to pick up with that cliffhanger next time and see what happens. I mean, we know what happens. But Luke does that, I think, intentionally to say it's not quite done just yet. Imagine that you get news that a missionary friend of yours, someone that you consider to be a godly, kind, humble person based on all of your interactions over many years, had been killed somewhere in South America. Your first thought, of course, is that it's awful. You assume that she'd been martyred for her faith or, or maybe it was an accident, something like that. But then some strange details begin to emerge. Her body was found at a crime scene. It was one gang hitting another gang. Multiple bodies hacked to bits by machetes. And every single person in that room with your friend was a violent criminal or a drug lord or a murderer or a rapist. You are shocked. And you can't imagine why your friend would be in the middle of a scene like that, especially her life ending in such a horrific way. There's a dissonance. A dissonance is when there's an inconsistency, a disagreement, when things just don't quite line up. We'll talk about a dissonance. Describing violent criminals being hacked to death by machetes doesn't seem like very appropriate Sunday morning fare, you know, like maybe I've gone too far to make a point. Yet somehow we have no problem regularly talking about the most devious and disgusting form of torturous death ever invented, even decorating our buildings with it. We have no trouble singing about the blood of someone being shed, 
Even taking part in a ritual where we drink something representing that very blood and eating something representing the body. In fact, once a year, we put on our Sunday best, get together in our new dresses, our nice suits, reserves for special occasions to hear all about the brutal death of a man whose skin had been flayed, who'd been beaten beyond recognition, who was literally nailed to an instrument of torture where he slowly bled out but actually suffocated to death before he could die of blood loss. We've sanded down and polished the cross to such an extent within the church that we've taken all the offense out of it. You can embrace it with all of your might and not get so much as a splinter. Luke wants us to deal with the dissonance. For 22 plus chapters, he's been demonstrating the type of person that Jesus was. And he's very matter of fact in his description. He takes the same approach um, as, as World Magazine as described by the former editor-in-chief, sensational facts, understated prose. In other words, there may be some incredible things that happen, but he's not over the top in how he describes it. This is what happened. This is what was said. It's not a work of flattery. It's not a hagiography. He's clear in the beginning, in chapter 1, that he went to great lengths to get the facts straight. It almost feels like a court case, and Luke has collected information on his client in order to make the reader understand one main thing. There's no shadow of a doubt that Jesus was fully 100% innocent and did not deserve to be in the situation that we find him in when we get to chapter 23. He wants us to see this. And, and then when we, when we get to verse 32 and read, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and on his left, to think there's something off here. This isn't how things should be going. Jesus shouldn't be here because this isn't the type of man who gets crucified. You'll see it in Acts, also written by Luke. We'll get there um, a few weeks from now. A recurrent theme in the sermons in Acts is the basic facts of Jesus was righteous and Jesus received an unjust, undeserved punishment. That is how they, they boil the gospel down to those things. There's another meaning of dissonance, a mingling of sounds that strike the ear harshly. So what are the sounds at the cross? You know, Luke is very careful with the words that he chooses. We see the rulers scoffing. In the other Gospels, it, it, it talks about the rulers mocking. But Luke uses a different word, scoffing. What is scoffing? This is the religious leaders turning up their nose at the idea of Jesus being Messiah. You see the jokes about saving. You know, that's the task of the Messiah, to save Clearly, he can save no one from a cross. They scoff. We see mocking. The soldiers, if the, the religious leaders, the Jewish men, they, they joke about Jesus, the Messiah, the Messiah promised to the Jewish nation. We see the Roman soldiers mocking 
Jesus as king, not taking seriously the idea of Jesus as a king. We hear a criminal railing. I'm going to tell you the Greek word for it, not because I usually don't, usually don't do that because you know, honestly it doesn't matter for most people what the Greek word is, but I think you'll recognize this one. Blasphemio. He's blaspheming. He's not taking Jesus seriously as Messiah. He's joking about him saving, treating it lightly, treating it as nothing more than a joke. And then the dissonance within the dissonance, the words of Jesus, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The bigger picture of this dissonance is the righteous among the unrighteous. We know that Jesus has done nothing to deserve this, and Luke reiterates it here as we approach the cross. If you remember from last week, Pilate, he's perplexed. Why are you bringing this man? You know, Pilate is used to people being brought to him and condemning them to death by crucifixion. When Jesus comes and they explain the reason why, he can't understand why would you bring him to be crucified? And he says, I find nothing in him deserving of death. This isn't the type of man that usually stands before me for crucifixion. He's done nothing deserving of death. We see it in verse 41. This man has done nothing wrong, the criminal says. In verse 47, the centurion, after Jesus had breathed his last, is certainly this man was innocent. In verses 50 and 51, Joseph of Arimathea, he was part of the council, but Luke makes it clear, he didn't agree with the decision and the action taken. And who was Joseph? Joseph was a righteous man. Luke is making it clear to us that something is out of place. Jesus doesn't belong on a cross. But if he is making it, if he's attempting to make it so clear that that Jesus on a cross is as out of place as a far-left liberal at an NRA rally, then what is Jesus doing on a cross? Well, is this where we just say, well, he just wanted to show how much he loved us. You know, he, he thought, he took the fall and thought of me above all. I mean, that's partly true, but if I'm going to, if I want to express my love to my wife, you know, I might clean the bathroom. That's her love language, cleaning. Um, Or, yeah, if you know her, you're laughing. Um, Or um, I might take the kids and and leave for the day. Like, that's her other love language. but I'm, I'm not going to go out and get myself brutally killed to express my love to my wife. Verse 41, the other criminal on the cross says, we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Here's our first hint that Luke gives us. Jesus is dying a substitutionary death, that that is his business on the cross, that there are those who deserve this death, 
but that Jesus is taking that same death undeserving of it. So what is this cross? I mean, we've got to understand the cross, and I'm sure we do to an extent. Even those who don't claim anything of the cross know a little bit about what the cross is because it's, it's, it's everywhere. We're used to crosses like this and, and this one and other ones that we see, but do we really grasp the cross? In Jewish biblical tradition, so how, how Jews would have understood and viewed the cross, um, we see it in Deuteronomy chapter 21. In fact, one of these verses was read earlier, if you remember. So this is the, the, in Deuteronomy, the law being given to the nation of Israel. These are laws for how you should govern yourself as a nation. So here was a, a law recognizing that if a man has, been, has committed a crime punishable by death, so there may be crimes that are punishable by death, if he's put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. Why? For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So do you see that there? Not death by hanging, but death then hanging. The hanging was to make a statement about that person. The statement is this is a person cursed by God. There's a famous example of hanging that you probably don't realize. Um, do you remember Haman in the book of Esther? We know that a giant gallows was built, but this wasn't um, a gallows like a, a, a noose and he was hung this way. It would have been a giant spear that he would have been pierced by and hung up there for all to see. The Jews knew this story. They knew someone like Haman, yeah, that's the kind of person that deserves to be up there. That's the kind of person who's cursed by God, the person that wanted to bring destruction to the entire Jewish people in the world. That's the kind of person that belongs up there. So that's in the back of the mind of the Jewish tradition when they think of someone being hung up. Roman tradition, so the laws of Rome rule at the time that we're reading in Luke 23. So how did the cross come about to where we see it as we see it in Luke 23? Well, the cross was a, a law-keeping instrument. It was, it was come up with in order to deter crime. Not stealing a piece of fruit type of crime, but violent crime. Who was it for? Well, it was for brigands. We don't use that word often. Um, but a, a brigand, it's someone who is a violent, murderous criminal or robber who commits violent crime, robs, steals, but also there's this element of, of either killing or, or um, injuring in an extreme way. Some places that we see that in Scripture that you are familiar with, you just don't realize it maybe. The story of the Good Samaritan. Do you remember what happened to the man in the beginning of the story? He fell in among robbers. He was beaten and left for dead and everything taken from him. That word robber, it's that same word, brigand. So that, the, the highway that he was traveling, that was a, a common problem. That was a, um, a, a place where this was a possibility coming into or out of the city on this long road where people could easily hide and, and, and this type of thing happened. People would be robbed and beaten, maybe killed. 
So when Jesus tells that story, he's talking about a, a situation that people would have been familiar with in their culture because that's the kind of thing that happened and the kind of person that did it was a brigand. Barabbas, you remember Barabbas? He's the one that they said, release for us Barabbas and crucify Jesus instead. He's referred to in different gospels. One is a murderer, one is a robber. Well, which one is it? Well, probably both because that's what a brigand was. It did both. Barabbas was a brigand. Jesus was hung between two, well, Luke uses the more general word criminal, but the other gospels use that word again, thieves, robbers. It's that same word. That's who was hung up on the cross. Those are the type of people that were hung up on crosses during this time. So in some, it was used to deter crime. You know, there's this problem like, you don't want that in your, in your empire. You don't want that in your town, in your city. And they can't police everywhere. So one way to deter that, let's come up with a way to show everyone what happens to them if they, um, if they are involved in this sort of violent crime. And so they would be hung up publicly for everyone to see to make a statement in places on streets where people would see them as they go about their business as a statement to say, and this too will happen to you if you were caught doing these types of things. And so it's a, it's a drastic measure, but it was, it was to stop um, some pretty awful things from happening. It, there was an insurrection at one point. Uh, the historian Josephus, he records that up to 2,000 of the people that were involved in the insurrection were crucified at one time. And so you can just imagine the, the roads lined with crosses, people hanging from them. You ever seen the movie um, Spartacus? Yeah, thank you. Spartacus, I mean, you see the, the same thing. Um, and so I say that just to say that this is something people would have seen and been familiar with. It wouldn't have been like, oh no, what's a cross? They knew what crosses were. They were familiar with seeing people hang on crosses. And if they saw someone hanging on a cross, this is the assumption in their mind. Someone did something wrong, deserving of severe punishment, and should be made an example of. They might think it was unpleasant, but they'd at least understand that it was necessary when they saw someone hanging across because it might prevent violent crime from being committed against them or against someone that they know. That's what crosses were for, and that's who they were for. Jesus had no earthly business being on a cross. That's not the kind of person that ended up on a cross. But Jesus did not come on an earthly errand. Romans 5 says, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. It's easy to think we, we get the cross, we understand the cross, you know, maybe because you, you take pride in it, as our Christian symbol. Although someone from the Roman world 2,000 years ago was time warped into today, into today and saw our buildings with crosses on them, the only thing they'd wonder is why we do all of our executions inside of buildings instead of publicly. <laughs> you might think that you know everything about the cross because you can explain it about a as a theological framework. You know, you can, you can explain the atonement. You can explain substitutionary death you, death. you can explain justification by faith. You know all of these things. And the cross is at the center. So, of course, you get 
the cross. But even in all this, it's easy to miss the offense of the cross. Consider that Jesus' death on the cross is a substitutionary death, that he was dying in our place. And then consider this, that God waited until this moment in history to send his son, and not a moment later, not anytime sooner. He waited until there was an offensive instrument of torturous death for hardened criminals deserving of punishment that also conveys God's curse to send his son, a perfect storm. It was believed at the time that there were only a few sufficient reasons for suicide to be considered. And one of those was to avoid being crucified because that means of death was considered so unbearably harsh. And this is the moment when God turns and says, son, it's time. There is finally a means of death that they have come up with that sufficiently displays how rancid and disgusting and heinous and offensive and hateful and selfish and putrid sin really is. If it just required a death, I mean, Jesus could have been sent at any time. It could have been done in a very, you know, quote-unquote humane way. Why not wait until the gas chamber was invented when he could just slowly drift off to sleep or, or lethal injection or, or at least the electric chair when he could just, um, when, he, when it could have been much quicker? Why couldn't he die in battle in a manly, heroic way? Why couldn't he have been just shot through the heart where he would die instantly? It's because it wasn't just death that mattered. By Jesus dying as a substitute, we are meant to see not just that we deserve death, but we deserved this kind of death for our sin. Is the offense of the cross starting to sink in a little bit, sting a little bit even? But what do you find yourself tempted to do? Scoff, turn up your nose at such a thought that, that someone like you would deserve something like that. I don't need that. I don't need someone like that. I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I'm going to trust in the good things that I've done. I'm good. Mock and laugh. It's such a ridiculous thought. I don't need such an antiqu- to take such an antiquated idea seriously. Blaspheme and curse at God who would hold us responsible for our actions and our sin. Even more interesting to consider the nature of the criminal's blasphemy when he says, save yourself and us too. I won't acknowledge my need, but give me what I want. I don't need your kingdom. I'm fine with mine, but anything you want to do to add to my kingdom will be just fine if you're really powerful enough to do that. There's so many in the world willing to acknowledge a strong and capable God, but only willing to invite him into their kingdom. Forget the cross, just save me, and then you can go on your way. But praise God, there is another response here. In verses 40 and 42, 40 through 42, the other criminal rebuked him, saying, 
Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said, Jesus said to him, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. This is true saving faith. These are the elements of true saving faith. Number one, acknowledging we deserve this. We are here justly, he says. Number two, he's righteous. He doesn't deserve it. Number three, that he's entering a kingdom not by avoiding the cross. This is what's so interesting, that this criminal somehow gets that, that he's, although he's dying on a cross, that he's still going to enter into his kingdom not by avoiding the cross, but through the cross. He doesn't need to save himself. He needs to continue dying in order to save. That death isn't halting his ascendance to the throne, but it's the very stairway. He somehow gets this. And then last, he will enter with Jesus. He will walk through the entrance where a torn curtain hangs. Do you remember that curtain that we read about? What is this curtain? Well, Luke wants us to see something in those verses. Verses 44 through 49. The language that he used there, it's all about seeing. It's all about sight. He talks about the sun going dark. And all in the other gospels, when they talk about that, they also talk about the earth, the ground shaking. There's a, a terrible earthquake there as well, and all these other th many different things happened there at that time. But Luke just talks about the lights. So he talks about something visual. And then in verse 47, the centurion when he saw what had taken place. In verse 48, when the crowds had assembled for this spectacle, a spectacle is something that you gather to see, to witness with your eyes. When they saw what had taken place, returned home. All his acquaintances, the women, what they were they doing? They were watching these things. Luke wants us to see something here. What is going on in the middle of this passage? There's a curtain being torn. What is this curtain? Early on in the Bible, God comes to Abraham and he makes a covenant. So he establishes a relationship with him built on a promise. God would have a special people on earth who would be his, and they would come from Abraham. His grandson Jacob, also known as Israel, he had 12 sons, and from them came 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. They were enslaved in Egypt for several hundred years until God, who had not forgotten them but remembered his covenant with Abraham, he delivered them through miraculous intervention. They would be a special nation whose laws and government came from God himself, and God himself would be their king. Not only that, but God himself would dwell with them. He gave them instructions for a special place that they should construct that would be the dwelling place of their king, God. It was to be a beautiful place, but since they lived in the wilderness they were, and they were a nomadic people on their way to their permanent home, it had to be a structure they could fold up and, and carry through the desert. And even this had specific instructions. And then there was a special item, an, an ark, something like a fancy trunk 
It was representative of God's presence. It was constructed in a way to represent God's throne room in heaven with the two cherubim sitting on, one, on each side. And this thing was called the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark was where God would dwell and what, on what was called the mercy seat. We sang about the mercy tree earlier. Well, this was the mercy seat where God dwelt. The Ark would be carried around just as other people would carry around their kings on the, on the bars and the, and the chair sitting up there, they would carry around their king the, on the ark. And when they stopped and made camp, the special place called the tabernacle, it would be set up with the ark in the center of it. There was a center room inside the tabernacle where the ark stood. It would be filled with God's presence. It was called the most holy place or the holy of holies. But there was something else about this place. It wasn't a place where people could, could, could come and just dwell in the presence of God. They couldn't just come spend time with God. They couldn't just come and commune and talk to God and just be with God. Because there was this huge, heavy, beautiful curtain or veil that was placed in front of this room. And no one could enter this place because God's presence dwelt there. No one could handle being in God's presence. It'd be like stepping into a room with a being that breathes pure hydrogen. We're not equipped to handle that. The veil was protection for the people, just as much as a warning from God, a holy God. Only one man, the high priest, who had been given a special task could enter, and he would make a yearly offering, atoning for the sins of the people. But this could only happen one time per year. You could say that the entire nation of Israel, God's people, centered around the place of God. It was the center of life. Literally, when they set up camp, the tabernacle was in the center, and then each tribe set up around the tabernacle in order. Their national activities centered around it. Sacrifices were be, to be made daily, morning and evening there. The festivals throughout the year consisted in gathering at the tabernacle to worship God as he sat in his dwelling place. It was the place from which all mercy flowed and to which all worship was directed. All the rituals dealt with this place ultimately. But it was a place that was covered. It was a place that was concealed. It was a place that no one could enter. And as the wrath of God is being poured out on his only son who is bearing the weight of the sin of the world on his shoulders, as Jesus is breathing his last, completing the rescue task planned before the foundation of the world, this curtain is torn in two. Knowing what God himself was capable or authorized to do, what could only be described as an act of sedition against God if it had been done by anyone else. This was huge. This signified a fundamental change in relationship with God. There was no longer a reason to keep people separate from God. The entrance into the kingdom of God then and now stands open for those who truly set out on its path, for those who have eyes to see. Joseph of Arimathea, who buried Jesus, he was looking for the kingdom. And then there was this vicious criminal, probably a murderer, 
be someone with a tattoo for every kill. He's covered with them. Someone we'd cross the street to avoid. Someone we wouldn't let our kids within 100 feet of. He saw in Jesus the door to the kingdom of God and the cross is the key that would unlock it. Have you ever stared into the eyes of a killer? Maybe a picture on TV or a, a picture on TV but particular in, in person, sat there as the evidence and the details of the act are gone, gone over detail after detail and sat and watched the eyes. I'm sure some of you have. I know some of you have. And this past week was a difficult week to be at a trial of that nature Given all this going on in my mind, I'd been meditating on and wrestling hard with for about a week, trying to grasp this cross, this thing that we think we're so familiar with, but we need to truly and fully understand. If you looked in someone's eyes like that, especially as you're thinking about what they've done, the almost inevitable question you find yourself asking, you probably know it, it's on the tip of your, your tongue or your mind. What kind of person could do something like this? What kind of mind could even conceive of doing something like this? And, and as I sat there, even with my sermon notes that I was working through in the background while witnessing what was in front of me, there's only one true and honest answer I could come up with in light of all this. And I couldn't escape it. I did not want to say it, but the answer, a person like me. Realizing there's no difference between the person sitting up in the front of that room and me sitting in the back. True, one had broken man's laws, had offended the good laws of earth, but I had broken God's laws. I had offended God himself. How can I compare myself to someone like that? It's right there in black and white. Matthew 5, Jesus said, You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the counselor. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the fire of hell. And how else can you explain Jesus hanging on the cross and dying for my sin, not because he was just bored and had nothing better to do that day, because he was dying a substitutionary death in my place. He was atoning for, paying for the price of my sin and of yours. Not just dying any type of death, but that particular type of death, because that is the very type of death that I should have faced. And then I hear the curtain tear. Jesus has gone into that fearful place of God's unfiltered presence. He's brought an offering unlike any that has ever been brought to that place. I give myself on their behalf. 
he who knew no sin, who was righteous, who was innocent, became sin on our behalf. He didn't just die, he became sin on our behalf. And the father looked at what his son had done and declared, paid in full. At last, nothing can keep them from me any longer. And he tore that veil in half. And then just like all those years before, at the beginning of this whole venture called creation, the father looked at all that had been done and behold, it was very good. And Jesus rested from all of his work because it was complete and there was nothing more that he needed to do. And he was laid to rest on the holiest of all Sabbaths. Let's pray. The prayer this morning is from Romans 8. As I read this, would you just make this your meditation, make this your prayer as you wrestle with the cross and the offense of the cross. And yet, when we realize that, when we pivot from that offense to realize that because Jesus has died, we have true salvation. Romans 8, he did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised he also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or anguish or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you we are being put to death all day long, we are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, we are more than victorious through him who loved us, for I am persuaded that not even death or life, angels or rulers, things present or things to come, hostile powers, height or depth, or any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.